Hi, folks, this is Abel, and thank you so much for listening to Fat Burning Man, where we talk about real food and real results. I'm coming at you today from just outside of Phoenix, Arizona, from Allison's parents' grapefruit orchard, and it's a beautiful day, swelteringly hot, but I can tell you I just had my first real shower in about two weeks, and I feel terrific, and I hope you do too. So uh, this week's show is with Nina Tekels. It's a really good one about our country's sordid relationship with saturated fats. Uh, In case you were wondering why I haven't showered in so long, (laughs) it's because we just got back from uh, a series of adventures, the latest of which was going to Burning Man. If you don't know what that is, it's just, you know, the name of the show is a funny play on words from a few different directions, but one of them is uh, the Burning Man Festival is out in the middle of nowhere in the uh, Nevada desert, and we just came from there camping out of a uh, small SUV because our truck actually caught fire on the way to Burning Man. Think about that for a second. Uh, can't make this stuff up. But yeah, but just outside of Reno, we were stranded on the side of the highway for a while. If you've been keeping up with our story, we just downsized. We got out of the apartment, got rid of pretty much all of our stuff and moved into a fifth wheel trailer. So we were pulling that with the truck, the new truck <laughs> that caught fire on the side of the road. And uh, man, has it been a pretty impressive past few weeks, but we're really, really excited to be back here uh, in Arizona, and we're going to be continuing our tour of the country. A few things to look forward to. Might be going to Nashville in the next few months. Looking forward to that, to hang out with Denny Hemmingson, who's the lead guitarist and band leader for the Tim McGraw Band, and he's a past guest of the show as well. Um, If you haven't listened to those shows, be sure to check him out. Just a sweetheart of a guy with a lot of really... uh, veteran knowledge about how to eat well on the road and he does it right so uh, hopefully we're going to be hanging out with him in the next few months i'm going to be back on the radar but we're going to be living out of the rv with our dog for the next few months and we'll see how that goes Uh, but i'll be keeping you updated it'll be really difficult for me to do video versions of this this podcast show fat burning man so what i'm going to do is continue to do the audio only version of this show that's the way i asked you guys uh, how do most of you listen? And uh, most of you do do just that. You listen as opposed to watching the video on YouTube or whatever. Um, that said, we've been shooting separately a lot of specific video content. I'm coming up in a few documentaries. One of them is coming from uh, Pedram Shojai. He's another past guest of the show. Origins and Vitality are the names of his films. And I'm really looking forward to you guys seeing all of his stuff. Uh, we've been shooting some other video the first time we shot for some of the webisodes that we have coming up. He made me break my foot while we were out bouldering. So still working on that and coming back from it, but never a dull moment. I'm just practicing my handstand pushups now. So (laughs) who needs your feet for that? So once again, I just don't want to apologize because I missed a week. I think this is out of the hundred, over a hundred shows that I've done over the past like three or so years. I think this is only the third week that I've missed a show. And that's uh, simply because our truck caught fire and we were stranded and then we went to Burning Man and we're off the grid for about a week. So it's uh, really good to be back. And obviously I'm going to be keeping these shows coming to you, um, especially the audio versions. And then we're going to be, uh, why don't you look forward to some of the webisodes that we have coming up, including uh, Breaking a Foot. I did a fake before and after shoot, which is really interesting. I basically let myself go for a couple of weeks and uh, grew my beard out and had body hair and just kind of looked overall schlubby, really needed a haircut, and then um, showed you how easy it is to make fake before and after shots. So look forward to that. That should be coming out 
on my YouTube channel, uh, as well as my video podcast, Fat Burning Man, in the next few weeks or months, depending on how we package it up for you guys. But the best way to make sure that you uh, get all of the updates, including our new app, which I'm really excited about, go to fatburningman.com, put in your best email address, and we'll fix you right up. Okay, so onto this show with Nina. A decade ago, investigative journalist Nina Tekel set out to uncover the truth about our country's misguided conception that eating delicious butter, beef, and cheese would make us fat and give us heart attacks. In this incredibly open, honest interview, Nina touches on a little bit of what's covered extensively in her new book, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. You'll be relieved to know that the foods that should be on your dinner plate are much more delicious than the frozen, low-fat, weight control dinner. Trust me, I know I'm the fat burning man. All right, let's go hang out with Nina. All right, folks, Nina Teichels is an investigative science journalist, and we're here to talk about the story behind fat. Nina, how's it going? Hi there. So uh, I'm excited about this because a lot of people have heard bits and pieces about fat used to be bad and some fat, saturated fat, I think is bad or is it good for me? And omega sixes and threes, they hear a lot of terms thrown around. What they don't hear a lot of is uh, all of the background because we didn't used to like basically think of fats in numbers and in scientific terms. We basically just ate food. And it, it wasn't until we kind of started deconstructing everything that we really ran into a lot of problems. So let's kind of approach things from the opposite side uh, and tell the story behind fat. And before we do that, just uh, let's catch people up a little bit about your work, what you do, and what you specialize in. Okay, so I wrote a book called The Big Fat Surprise, Why Better Meat and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. That is a book that basically took me almost a decade to write. I'm a science investigative journalist, and I started out by, I was basically a low-fat eating vegetarian and um, got this little side gig to write a restaurant review column where we didn't have money to pay for meals. So I went into the restaurant. The chefs, I discovered, don't want to send out chicken breasts and stir-fried vegetables. They want to send out red meat and cream sauce and pate. and Tastes better. That was my introduction to these foods. And I found that all of a sudden I lost this stubborn 10 pounds I had been struggling with. Mm -hmm. And my cholesterol markers look great. So that was a huge mystery. And that was like a decade ago that I started to embark on this whole journey about to try to understand what is the history of why we believe what we believe now, that fat and saturated, especially saturated fats. Mm-hmm. My book is mainly, my book really lays out all the arguments about why saturated fat, the kind of meat, cheese, bit, butter, dairy, eggs, why right. that kind of fat is not bad for health. Um, and it, the story really begins in the 1950s when the United States was in a panic about the epidemic of heart disease that had risen out of nowhere to become the nation's number one killer by the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And there were many ideas about you know, what caused heart disease and heart attacks. And there was one scientist named Ansel Keys who was a pathologist at the University of Minnesota, and he proposed saturated fats as the dietary culprit. Cause mm-hmm. saturated fats would cause your cholesterol levels to go up, total cholesterol, and that would clog your arteries and give you a heart attack. It was like this simple two-step process, yep. three-step process that he believed caused heart attacks. 
And he was this outsized character, incredibly charismatic, incredibly forceful man. And he managed to get his idea. He persuaded the Nutrition Committee at the American Heart Association. He got his idea implanted into the American Heart Association in 1961. So the very first dietary guidelines to, at that point, just middle-aged men to fight heart disease began in 1951. That's the beginning of this hypothesis that yeah. has guided and dominated our dietary advice for the last 50 years. But it's really important to know that when that became our dietary advice in 1961, there were there was no science, there were no trials, there was right. no science backing up that idea. Mm-hmm. And my book including like, the original study. <laughs> as yeah. it turns out. So what he did, he had he had the biggest study that had ever been done called the seven country study. That was like the big bang of nutrition science. Like yeah. it was he's studied almost 13,000 men in seven different countries around the world. And what he found, he thought, although it was deeply flawed, for example, in Crete where he sampled men, he sampled them during Lent, mm-hmm. you know, a religious holiday when you're abstaining from meat, cheese, butter, dairy, eggs. So right. he drastically undercounted the amount of saturated fat that they were eating. But And there were other methodological problems, like he cherry-picked his countries. He only chose ones that he knew would confirm his hypothesis and avoided countries like France, right. where they eat a lot of saturated fat, but mm-hmm. they didn't have a lot of heart disease, and West Germany. And so, But that study, in the end, he it shows it's an epidemiological study, mm-hmm. and it shows association, not causation. Um, but that was the piece of evidence that was used by the American Heart Association for those very first dietary recommendations, this weak science. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the story... Non-science, you might even say. Well, I mean, epidemiology is a fine science, but it's used to suggest hypotheses, right? right? It's not, it can't be used as proof. Yeah. So it can suggest an idea. Does saturated fat cause heart disease? Here's something right. that suggests it might be true. And then you have to do a clinical trial to actually, sh- to demonstrate proof or to mm-hmm. try to, There's no such thing really as proof in science to try to show that there's some evidence behind your hypothesis. And, you know, the story of our 50 years of low-fat, low-saturated-fat dietary recommendations has really been suffused by the kind of overuse of this weak nutritional epidemiological studies and and overusing them as proof, like pushing them beyond what they can really tell us. Mm -hmm. And that's because nutrition science is hard to do. It's expensive. Following people over a long period of time or feeding them in a clinical trial is really expensive and hard to do. And so poor, you know, weak evidence has been made to suffice. Yeah. But it's been wrong. I mean, we subsequently have clinical trials to show that this was a hypothesis that just could not, the evidence really has not supported it. Right. And the evidence, like, and that's what you find so often, especially in the field of nutrition, is that you, you're you just like, oh, this is the thing. And once we figure out this thing, then we have the answer to everything. And as soon as, like, the farther you go down that path, the more you realize, oh, it's actually not as simple as we thought it was, you know? And, and you kind of see that happening, at least with some of the infighting now in especially the blogosphere and online communities where you have people arguing about like, well, are there any carbohydrates that are good for you? Like which ones are safe, which ones are toxic? And also you look at uh, as soon as anything kind of catches on in the food world, all of a sudden the vultures come in and try to profit off of it almost immediately. And so you see that happening to stevia now. Uh, I, I know you mentioned in your book, the olive oil 
industry and a lot of like where our ideas about certain diets as being healthy come from are actually more from advertising than from any sort of scientific data set. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of those outside influences that have, uh, I guess, convinced us about conventional wisdom that that doesn't actually rely on any sort of reality? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you cover a lot of ground in what you're talking about, but I'm just going to choose the, the topic of industry influence yeah. in nutrition science. Perfect. is a big one. Mm -hmm. So, and it goes back to those very first American Heart Association guidelines in 1961 when Americans were told cut back on saturated fat and instead, instead of meat, cheese, dairy, eggs, eat unsaturated fat, vegetable oils instead, you know, safflower, sunflower, peanut, corn, eat those oils instead. Mm -hmm. Well, when that was happening, Procter and Gamble, um, which the maker of Crisco oil, mm -hmm. they had basically been the transformative backer of the American Heart Association. The American Heart Association was like this sleepy professional society, barely had any money. And then Procter & Gamble came along and said, okay, we're going to make you the designee of our popular radio show that we're a sponsor of. And overnight, $1.7 million, this is in 1948, flowed into the American Heart Association coffers and overnight transformed it into wow. the national they opened chapters all over the country and transformed it into a national powerhouse. And Procter & Gamble continues to be a backer of the American Heart Association today. So, and, and, and the American Heart Association, coincidentally, was recommending that everybody eat vegetable oils mm -hmm. made by Procter & Gamble. So <laughs> Imagine that's, that. You know, that's just one story. There are, the, food, the food industry has known, has been very wise about steering the nutrition conversation from the very beginning. They, uh, before the National Institute of Health was even founded to provide research funding, the big food companies, you know, this was the early, like the 1930s and 40s, that was when General, you know, General Foods and Best Foods and Kellogg's, all those companies were, were growing up and they founded back in 1940 something called the Nutrition Foundation and the aim of that was to influence science at its source. Mm -hmm. So they will fund studies at Harvard, Yale, Pennsylvania, you know, prestigious universities and influence the very scientists themselves, mm -hmm. um, influence the research science itself. And I have an amazing quote in my book by a vice president of one of the big edible oil companies today saying, if you give money, if you pay a quarter of a million dollars for a study at a university, you can be pretty well sure that it's going to end up saying what you want. Right. <laughs> so, and I mean, there's science to back that up too, right? I mean, it's yeah, it's some crazy yeah. ratio that those studies that are they come out biased toward the funder the vast majority of the time. Right. You can design. You can't totally rig a study, but. Right. You can make a study so that it is likely, if the result is negative, it's, it just doesn't come out looking mm -hmm. so bad for your product. Sure. And, um, and so the hand of industry has really been in this story throughout. I mean, all the early studies comparing high saturated fat diets to low saturated fat diets, all the food in those low saturated fat diets where all that food was provided by the food industry, right? Yeah. Because, mm -hmm. and they, and it's amazing to think in retrospect, like how anybody, I mean, the foods that they provided in those studies were things like soy filled milk and soy filled cheese right. and soy hamburgers. This is like, I'm talking in the 1970s and this, and so 
the scientists in those studies had to believe that, you know, these just invented foods provided by food companies mm -hmm. would restore Americans back to their original health. Right. <laughs> Compared to meat, cheese, butter, dairy, eggs, which right. have been in our diet for thousands of years before well, the epidemics of heart disease and diabetes and obesity. Yeah. In, in a way, you can kind of like, you can see why that would be the case. It's like, we just put a man on the moon. Um, you know, technology is something that, at, at least at that point, was so breakthrough, just like mind-blowing, right? You need to re-examine uh, your, your stature in the world, what it means to be a human being, if you can put a human being on the moon. And so anything, like, thus, if you follow that logic that all of these new things that are coming out, that scientists and lab coats invent that are better than food, that makes sense. Of course, like we can we can do that now, but that logic kind of falls apart over the course of the next few decades. That is such a great observation because it is absolutely true that Americans, this was a period when the faith in scientific inventions over, you know, compared to like old traditional ways, Americans were so open to these new ideas, probably more so than in other countries. I, I think right. it's not a coincidence that it was Americans who first adopted this low saturated fat diets because we're a nation of immigrants. We're, we're far away from our grandmothers and their recipes and you know we're divorced from our traditions. So mm -hmm. it was maybe it was more possible to plant these ideas and a lot of it came through women's magazines and telling them to put away the you know lard and butter which had been right. the only cooking fats for all of American history and saying you know Put those away with the, the spinning wheel. Those belong to your, the generation of your grandmother. And now embrace new right. Crisco made in steel, clean steel factories. And so there was this whole appeal to modern ways, modern scientific thinking and nutrition was part of that, even though the science, it, the science of nutrition was just in its infancy. I mean, it was such a primitive state of affairs yeah. when Ansel Keys got his start. I mean, they could only even, all they could measure was total cholesterol at that point, right. which is just an incredibly primitive state of understanding about heart disease. You know, right. saturated fats was condemned on very primitive evidence. And so if you go to the other side of people who are looking into this sort of thing, you have Weston A. Price a few years before that who is going around uh, looking at native tribes and basically looking at the health of their teeth, which is indicative of the health of their bodies and their bones. And we actually find that fats actually have been very prized over the course of time by almost every civilization that's had access to abundance of them. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like why uh, today we kind of shun butter, but it used to be a prized possession. Right. Yeah. And the, the opening part chapter of my book is all about the, not just Weston A. Price, he was fantastic and he did amazing work for anybody who's listening. They should read his book. He, and he was a dentist. But there were um, there are many instances of men of science traveling to parts of the world. Okay, so, so you know, the, the Inuit are a famous example mm -hmm. of a high 70, 80 percent of their diet was fat. They ate almost no, they ate no fruits and vegetables, almost at all, except for a few berries in the springtime. And they were uh, had no diabetes and seemingly no heart disease and incredibly healthy people. Mm -hmm. And then there was a scientist named George Mann who went to Africa and studied a tribe called the Maasai who live on nothing but blood uh, and meat and fat. That's it. That's their diet for the Maasai warrior. And he <laughs> actually took electrocardiographs of them, of like 400 of them, and couldn't find any traces of 
heart attacks. Or maybe there was one in that group that he thought maybe possibly had had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. So, and he documented this and there, and there were these accounts that were out there in, in the early 1900s and George Mann was in 1970, but basically the, the nutrition expert community became so closed to any ideas other than that fat and saturated fat were bad for you, that that idea became adopted and became enshrined as dogma so early on that any opposing idea was really shunned. I mean, this is one of the really fascinating things about this story is the extent to which critics were maligned and sidelined and their voice, they lost their research grants and they were, I mean, Ansel Keys is like the master of what I call the blood sport of nutrition science. He would Mm -hmm. literally call people names in print and he, he would smear them. And so to be a critic in this field, um, has meant a kind of loss of professional status. And by the mid-1980s, what happened was that critics just ceased. I mean, if you were a young person up and coming in this field, you looked at the life of a critic and realized this is professional suicide, so I'm not even going to go there. And when I first started researching this a decade ago, people were afraid to talk to me. They were literally, I sometimes would get off the phone shaking, thinking like, oh, I've I've just been interviewing the mob, a mob. I'm, I'm really? investigating the mob because... People were so afraid to talk to me. Literally, they don't want their names associated with the idea that a high fat or a higher fat diet might be okay for health. And you know, a lot has changed over the last decade, but right, it's really right. been a it's one of the really striking things about this field of science is the extent to which um, honest open debate was silenced early on. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it has not been an area where the uh, debate has really played out. Um, And that's why we've been stuck with the dogma for so long. Now, where does that fear come from? Is that because a lot of these people have basically spent their career saying that one thing was true? uh, So even if they know that it's not 100% true anymore, they still kind of have to stick with it or else they're a flip-flopper. Like what's the source of that? Why? Well, to to criticize anybody who criticized what's called the diet heart, heart hypothesis. So if you were a critic, of the idea that fat and especially saturated fat cause heart disease. If you want to criticize that, mm-hmm. you lose your research grant, you aren't invited to expert panels, you don't get invited to conferences, your papers become very hard to publish all of a sudden. You know, for one example, George Mann, that doctor who went and studied the Maasai, yeah. he was a critic of Ansel Keys, an open critic of Ansel Keys. And one day he recounted to me, uh, he's a secretary at the National Institutes of Health, pulled him out in the hall and said, Dr. Mann, I think you ought to stop criticizing Ansel Keys because it's going to cost you your research grant. Yeah. And it did. So if, you know, so that was in, in the late seventies, I guess, but the, but if you're, so if you're a researcher in the year 2000, you're looking at these stories of people like George Mann and thinking, I am not touching that. <laughs> right. And that's what I mean. The fear comes from, mm-hmm. you know, you, you are literally drummed out of the field of science for being a critic, a serious critic of the field. Okay. So everything kind of fell apart in the, in the 1930s to 1950s and then continued to get worse kind of after that, as far as thinking around fat goes and, and what we're putting in our bodies, what was happening before that? When people were actually lean, it wasn't because of eating less fat or more fat necessarily, what, what was happening before that, just in terms of the physiology of the human body? 
Well, one of the things that I do in my book is I go back and document what Americans really used to eat because mm -hmm. there's this myth, there's a kind of myth out there that we used to be this plant-eating people. That's right. what you know, Dean Ornish and, and others would like us to believe, and that's based on this very shoddy food disappearance data that, like, for example, that didn't count anything that didn't cross state lines. So anything that you grew as a farmer, consumed on your own farm, or the milk from your cow wouldn't sure. be counted. So that's really bad data. And what I did, I went back and looked at a lot of historical documents to try to show what Americans were actually eating. So it turns out we ate three to four times more red meat than we do today. Mm -hmm. And uh, we ate three to four times more butter and five to six times more lard. And we, um, and, vegetables, me, and vegetables <laughs> were considered not worth growing because yeah. they were so poor nutritionally. I mean, the, the, the first really major government report on nutrition by a Wesleyan professor in, in the late 1800s basically said, if you, you know, vegetables are a luxury. If you are not a wealthy person, just do not bother mm -hmm. growing them because greens are so poor nutritionless, nutritiously. Yeah. So, so we weren't, and, and you know, just as a matter of common sense, before we could before we could import kiwis from New Zealand right. and you know avocados from Israel, where were we getting fruits and vegetables for the you know nearly half the year that weren't even growing in yeah. large northern part of the United States? Well, how many of us were farmers back then? It's some huge number, like forty percent. So, right, and you know in New England, you uh, you know the growing season means you just can't even basically eat fruits and vegetables <laughs> for most of the year. I so remember. the idea that that was yeah. mainly our diet is kind of it just doesn't meet the standard of common sense. Right. And I also document how heart disease was, you know, rare, if not not, it was understood. And there was experts who were writing on it and, and there were textbooks on it, but it was so rare as to barely, of course, it was before epidemics of obesity and heart disease. So just those historical facts make you rethink. It just forces you to rethink this idea that return returning to a returning to what we thought was a plant-based diet might be a good idea. I mean, that's just it's full of misinformation that. Yeah, so let's talk a little the US bit. Government, yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Greens over the course of of maybe the last few centuries anyway. What who was eating them around the world like if poor people weren't bothering with eating greens were were wealthy people or nutritionally science said, or, or the lack of science said, that they're not something that you need to worry about. What role do vegetables play through those centuries? Well, you know, I think that if you're um, in, in temperate climates where they can grow fruits and vegetables year round, they mm -hmm. can eat fruits and vegetables year round. Um, that's just not realistic in large portions of the world where the weather doesn't, is not temperate year round. Yeah. So, um, and I mean, what can be said, fruits and vegetables became, once we cut, once we decided to cut meat, cheese, butter, dairy, eggs out of our diet, that created a big vacuum on the, a big empty space on the right. plate yeah. for Americans' <laughs> diet. And that had to be filled for with pizza. something. And that's basically where the drive to eat more fruits and vegetables came from, mm -hmm. because when you take all those foods off the plate, you need to replace them with something, and that's where the drive to eat more in fruits and vegetables. So Americans over the last 30 years, we eat 17% more fruits and vegetables than we did in the, in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. um, and that's in response to the 
the government telling us to eat more fruits and vegetables. It has not been demonstrated that fruits and vegetables can prevent cancer in any way. So the, late, the latest, biggest report, the World Cancer Report in 2007, the biggest effort to kind of reckon with that data said there is no evidence to show that fruits and vegetables are protective against cancer. Um, and I won't get into all the, you know, there's a, that's the, the evidence that a vegetarian diet is, is better for health is actually based on incredibly slender bits of evidence that I won't get into in depth now, but it, it's much less robust than people think it is. Sure. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about baby bathwater here, though, because so by saying that uh, vegetarians or a plant-based diet are off base, that's kind of one thing. Uh, saying that vegetables aren't a uh, solid part of a, a healthy diet for most people is kind of another concept that right, we you know, need to wrestle. Yeah, no, I of course. And I know you're not saying that, but I think some people who are listening because, and this is the problem with the whole debate around nutrition, right? Because you have the people who are just like, oh, vegetables are good and they prevent cancer and they you know, rattle off a bunch of things. Some which are shown to be true from signs, some of which are not, and then they omit the bad parts about their diet or whatever. Um, so you have them on, on one side saying, all you should eat is 30 bananas a day, right, <laughs> for example. And then you have the other side, which is just like, I'm just going to chug heavy cream all day, which is what some bodybuilders do, and just like chugging raw eggs and uh, mixing it up with heavy cream, which they've been doing for centuries as well, um, and actually being very successful doing that. And and so I think what we're left with is an enormous amount of confusion because you have people all over the place. Some seem to be doing miraculous things with their bodies, like on a plant-based diet. I had someone on my show, Rich Roll, who is uh, plant-based and an endurance athlete. Um, and then you just get people all over the map. So at the end of the day, Nina, what are you eating for dinner? Well, let me, I want to just answer this from a perspective of science rather sure. than me, because I'm like an N equals one. Yeah. Oh, of and course. So from the perspective of science, everybody, the reason that diets of all different kinds work for people is mainly that when you go to the doctor and they say you need to go on a diet, a lot of people just by getting off, the first thing they tell you is to get off desserts, stop right. eating desserts, right? Sure. So, and a lot of people just by cutting out sugar, high fructose corn syrup, refined flour. And I mean, just by getting rid of those things, everybody can lose weight and feel better and look better. Totally. So that's just as a basic starting point why all diets work to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. The There have been, if you look back over the last decade of clinical trials, there's been a pretty large number of rigorous clinical trials now. So that's the kind of evidence that can show causation. Mm -hmm. Rigorous means you control, you, you do a good job of controlling. You don't just hand somebody a diet book and say, you know, go for it. You actually can you feed them in cafeterias. You give them a lot of support to really keep them on the diet. And those, that body of large clinical trials really show that a high fat diet, you know, 50, percent more or at least of your diet is fat looks a lot healthier than a low fat diet mm -hmm. in terms of your markers for diabetes, obesity, and heart disease. So you can lose more weight on it and you're at lower risk for heart disease and diabetes and those things cluster. So that high fat diet, yes, it should have fruits and vegetables in it. I mean, that's great for health. But if you're going to have a high fat, high fat, low carbohydrate diet, the basic prism that you have to 
look at your food through is how much carbohydrates is this adding to my daily meal? So sure. if you eat fruit all day long, that's a lot of sugar. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the problems with eating too much fruit. Some vegetables are very high in carbohydrates, like, you know, starchy vegetables, like potatoes. And there's another little caveat, which is that if you're a naturally lean person, you can do a lot more with your diet. You have a lot more leeway. If you're somebody who's obese or diabetic or fighting heart disease, you are by definition more carb, more sensitive to carbohydrates. So you have to be a little bit more careful about the carbohydrates coming into your diet. So that high fat, low carb diet means you know, plenty of fat from whatever source you want. It can include saturated fats because the evidence really shows that saturated fats do mm -hmm. not cause heart disease. It doesn't have to include meat if that is something that makes you feel uncomfortable. It should definitely include vegetables and fruit. And um, But that high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet definitely looks better for health. Not high Crisco, though. Not high <laughs> well, no, I, yeah, not, not so much vegetable oils, um, yeah. but olive oil is good. And Saturated fats, I mean, the argument that I make for them in the book is, number one, the science has really been reevaluated on saturated fats. It's very clear that saturated fats were unfairly accused of causing heart disease. They right. do not cause heart disease. And they're part of these they're they're part of these really nutritionally dense foods that are super good for health. So, you know, we've been avoiding cheese, eggs, meat, these foods that are like the perfect package, the perfect protein fat balance. Mm -hmm with a lot of vitamins and minerals, some things you can't get outside of animal foods, vitamin right. B6, B12, you can only get in animal foods. You know, folate, selenium, zinc, iron, all those are much more dense in, in meat. And, you, and many of the vitamins you can only absorb with the fat, vitamins mm -hmm. A, D, E, K are only fat soluble. So these are like great nutritionally dense foods that we've been avoiding because we think saturated fat causes heart disease. But, but my argument is, I think the evidence really supports bringing them back into our diets. And the good news is they're delicious. In my they're coffee delicious. this morning, I think you'll appreciate this. I actually had uh, bone marrow and tallow as a blend as my coffee creamer. It was like a hamburger latte. It, it was actually really good. I'm going to do a That's blog incredible. post about that. So. I have never heard of that. <laughs> totally. Well, I like, I like to goof off, especially with the fat thing, because I was totally on that wagon, you know, basically eating cardboard and, and wringing out any pizza, any whole wheat pizza that I had and, and carrying around napkins and sponging off any of the grease. I started doing that when I was like eight years old. And, yeah. um, I, I was a little bit peeved when I found out that that was basically the wrong thing to do and, and encouraging me to eat the wrong food. So I, I think uh, embracing the other side of that, that uh, one of the biggest problems with fat is that um, it's the wrong word, right? Or we use that word for so many other things that are bad. Uh, and, and just the simple idea of if you cook bacon and then you leave it out, it turns hard. And what heart disease is, is basically your heart turning hard and like getting right. <laughs> getting bacon grease in it so that blood can't go through. At least that's the simplified thinking that is easy to fall into. But um, the case is, uh, is actually pretty simple that sugar is basically stored as fat, but whether it's stored fat or ingested natural fat, that's used more as energy. So when, when people kind of 
talk about fat or think about fat, at least within my community. I like, I like to think about fat that way. When I need a little bit of extra energy, like today, I'll have a hamburger latte or whatever, as opposed to, you know, a, a big old slice of white bread with non-fat cream cheese on top or something like that, which a dieter might have, for example. So, um, yeah. so what are you eating? Um, what, what is on your dinner table? Um, well, I think, I mean, I'm not having the bone marrow in my coffee, <laughs> although that does sound good. I you mean, should try it. Duck fat's really good too. Uh, yeah. So now I have all these ideas. I have, <laughs> you know, I have, um, a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. I have eggs, bacon, sausage in the morning. I have, um, I kind of snack through lunch, like cheese and nuts and maybe leftovers from mm -hmm. the night before. And then for dinner, we have a lot of um, hamburgers or stew. We do a lot of stews with nice bone broths. And, cool. and we have plenty of vegetables and we have chicken and we have fish. Um, we just don't have, what we don't have is a lot of, we don't have pasta mm -hmm. much. We don't have a lot of bread in the house. We, um, and I think that, you know, the challenge, I have two young boys. The mm -hmm. challenge is, you know, grownups can, I mean, it's hard for women to start eating a lot of fat. I have to sure. say the researchers that I spoke to would always say women get it. They don't eat, they shouldn't eat carbs. They understand about getting rid of the white stuff, but trying to get women to eat more fat is yeah. really hard because yeah. there's a phobia about it because yeah. as you say, it's right. like that tragic homonym, the fat you eat is the fat you get. Mm -hmm. And that is so ingrained in us for so many years. So what uh, would you, if, if there's one woman listening right now who is having a hard time eating fat, what would you say to her? Um, how did I get to eating my higher fat diet? It's just so delicious. And <laughs> the thing is also, you're not hungry. I mean, yeah. women especially obsess about everything they eat. And it's like a tyranny to have this constant obsession of thinking about how many calories and can you eat this and can you sure. eat that? And it is so deeply liberating to switch to a diet that is high in fat and protein because you cannot overeat on them. They just naturally fill you up. And the more you eat on them, the more controlled your appetite is. So the more you ramp up and the more you shift your diet to protein and fat, the less cravings you have for any other kind of food. So, you know, it's paradoxical seeming, but the more you ramp up on fat, if you have seven slices of cheese, you know, for an afternoon snack, you are just not in the mood to snack on chips, cookies, crackers, whatever right. it is you normally snack on. Yeah. Um, the other little tip I have to say is coconut butter. Oh, just the best. Spoonful. It's just like ice cream. It is so delicious. When we're traveling, we have little, they come in little packets. I can't remember what, what brand that is, but basically it's called coconut manna or coconut. Uh, like basically it's the entire coconut, but it's dry and put into kind of this yummy, almost frosting like consistency, especially if it's warmed up at, at room temperature. Oh man, it is so good. And it's great. You're, you're totally right. Like I'll use that if I'm going hiking or if I'm going out for the day and you know, I, I don't have the occasion to pack a whole picnic or whatever. You just take a couple yeah. of those little packets. They're like one or two bucks and they're just full of a delicious snack. Um, that's kind of like peanut butter, I guess, or almond butter yeah. or something like that, but just has a, a much more, uh, satisfying, I think, feel to it. It's, I know yeah. that when I have, when I have coconut or another great snack is like half an avocado with a little bit of salt on top. I'll have sometimes yeah. and uh, just stick a spoon right in there. And 
you it balances you out for the next you know two three six hours sometimes just because like you said you're running on that that fact you don't you can't be bothered with any of the chips or the other stuff because you well, have important right. things to do well, <laughs> right? you, know, you can't overeat on meat or you know protein right. and fat when they the overfeeding experiments that they that were done in the 1960s where they put stacks of pork chops in front of inmates and said you know eat right. and these guys are like we cannot eat any more of these you simply cannot overeat yeah. on that food no i've gone to foco to chow i get it <laughs> <laughs> so like that is the liberating part of it yeah. you know and for women you know it's just such a ugly handmaiden to be accompanying your life at every juncture like yes. this worrying about food and it's so nice to be free of that B freedom from that yes i i really like that i think um eating a lot of fat does give you that that independence from the snack foods and noise that's around you because you, right. you basically just kind of you have your own little thing you have your spoonful of coconut mana and you're good to go for hours right. and yeah it's well, you, it is possible to lose weight on a low-fat diet. It's just sure. like the numbers are tragic. So if yeah. you there's something called the National Weight Loss Registry where people who are formerly obese who've managed to keep lose weight and keep it off are registered there. And the average number of calories that women have to eat is is like under 900 calories a day. And for men, it's like under 1,300 calories a day. So that's basically saying, wow. yes, you can lose weight on a low-fat diet, but you are signing up for starvation for the rest of your life. Yeah. That's just Which to put is, that in perspective. That's like two Starbucks lattes, yeah. <laughs> right? It's so it's so it's such a deprivation. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, to say, look, you know, our to have the national government saying to Americans, "Here's our solution for you: starvation for the rest of your life," and right. that's our solution to chronic disease, <laughs> or get your stomach stapled, <laughs> right? Or bariatric surgery. Uh, yeah, it's Very it's out of hand. Now, I, I really do appreciate your message, obviously, all about the fat thing. Um, folks, where where can people find you um, after this show and what are you working on next? Um, well, my book came out not too long ago, so I'm still working on um, promoting my book, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. Um, and it's being published now in Australia, New Zealand, awesome. and the UK. So that's good. And I have a website called TheBigFatSurprise.com, which has all my media and reviews on it. And so I'm going to be doing that for a while. There's a number of pieces that I want to write for newspapers and magazines. And then cool. I'm looking for somebody to found the um, Parents for Whole Milk movement. <laughs> wow, cool. So I think we should have, you know, currently in the national government for the school lunch program and the WIC program, Women and Infants and Children's mm -hmm. Health Program, only allows 2% milk or less, yeah. um, which is a kind of tragic tragedy. It is. Yeah. So I think we need the, the national movement of parents for whole milk, mothers for whole milk, something like that, to to just to generate a change in our nutrition policy, yeah. starting with children. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a, a step in the right direction. And there are uh, many, many ways to go, but I think it all kind of goes back to simplicity. And uh, the yeah. answers aren't found in any of these little rabbit holes that we like to run down or that you might read about on the news or the latest fad thing that you see in a fitness magazine. It's really getting back to common sense about all this stuff and not right. being afraid every time you eat food and, and enjoying right. the freedom that you described earlier. So Nina, I, I really appreciate your message. I think your book is great. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you.
Thank you so much for listening to the Fat Burning Man Show. If you'd like free fat burning tips, muscle building goodies, as well as a free ebook and video course, head on over to fatburningman.com and enter your best email, and I'll shoot those right over to you. If you'd like to follow me on Facebook, I'm at facebook.com forward slash fatburningman. And on Twitter, my handle is fatburnman. Got some killer shows on the way, but in the meantime, be well, and I'll be talking to you guys soon. Cheers. Cheers.